inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training, equestrian sports, and building a better connection with your horse. It's time for Ride On with Julie Goodnight. Back at the ranch, well, by now, most of you've heard the news that my sweet little mare, Annie, and her on-again, off-again pregnancy is now on again. Woohoo! <laughs> We're so excited. And it, it, it's been a topsy-turvy ride because first she was tested pregnant and then she tested not pregnant. And um, then on sort of a whim, we tested her again. And sure enough, she was pregnant. She's getting bigger every single day that goes by now. And even though most mares aren't even showing their pregnancy at this point, you know, she's only five months into an 11-month gestation. Um, but Annie's quite small. She tops out at just 14.0 hands. The the stallion she's bred to, by the way, is the same size. He's a bit stockier um, than her, a little beefier, but not any taller. But more than her just being small, I think it's the fact that she's a extremely compact horse. She's got a very short back. And so I just think there's less room for that full longitudinally, um, in other words, from her nose to her tail, from front to back. So I, I think that's causing that baby to stick out horizontally more. But I've been sharing some pictures online here and there of how, how much her belly's sticking out like a pregnant mare now. You can almost see that baby in there. And um, so that makes us even more excited. Rich has been busy remodeling the nursery stall in the barn. We've installed the new Annie Cam in her stall so we can watch her at night. It records her movements um, when she goes in and out of her stall and when she lays down and all of that as she eats. It's, it's hilarious to watch. Once she comes in from the pasture in the evening, First, she just guzzles her grain like, you know, she's never eaten for a week or something. And after that, you know, 90 seconds it takes for her to guzzle down her grain, then she attacks her hay pile and she starts dragging her hay all around the stall. She spreads it evenly across the floor like it's a carpet, uh, picking out all the little choice morsels that she likes the best along the way. Um, and then as the night proceeds, and we, again, we're watching all this on video in the morning and it's hilarious, but um, as the night proceeds, she she starts hoovering up every little last piece of hay until by morning, there's not one little shred of evidence left. I can see from watching her on the recordings also that she's laying down a lot at night and um, I, I feel relieved to see that she she lays down in the middle of her uh, plushly bedded stall and um, she, she lays down several t different times during the night. Um, but again, it's interesting to watch her lay down because she does do quite a bit of squirming before she plops down onto the ground. But it, it, it's not she kind of lifting up her hind legs one at a time, almost like she's readjusting that baby in there. Um, before she plops down to the ground. So I'm glad that she is laying down in her stall. I'm glad she's getting that kind of rest. 
Uh, but also that's where uh, we hope that she'll lay down to full. Um, so it tells me that she likes her stall. She feels comfortable in there uh, enough to lay down at night. So that's good to see. And it's really fun to watch on the camera. So needless to say, we're super excited about the full coming at the end of April. Um, the only downside to this whole breeding thing is that I no longer have a horse to ride. Sure, my husband and my friends are happy to let me ride their horses, but that's not really what motivates me. Uh, I like training young horses. And, you know, and while, yes, you can ride a pregnant mare, and certainly many people are still riding mares at this point in their pregnancy, but honestly, if you saw how big Annie is and how she waddles around already, you really wouldn't want to ride her either. But on the upside, um, this time next month, Rich and I will be in Fort Worth to attend uh, the week of horse sales, which are affiliated with the Cutting Horse Futurity that's there every year in early December. We'll be looking both at trained horses and yearlings, and there are hundreds of horses that will be coming across the sale ring. And it's um, mostly the younger horses that I'm interested in, the yearlings. Um, so just so I would have something to play with until Annie's foal is old enough for training. That's going to be a few years from now. But Rich is also looking at another horse, a second horse. And so he'd be looking at the trained horses. So we're going to be really busy. We're going to go through six, uh, six different catalog sales, uh, one each day we're there. So it's going to be busy. We'll get a lot of steps in. And even if we don't buy a horse, uh, we really have a lot of fun looking at horses and lusting after all the horses we, we could never afford. But um, so it'll be a fun week. And then uh, Fort Worth is, is a fabulous place to visit. We'll be staying right in Old Town at the stockyards. And um, it's just a good time and visiting friends there, too. Even as I'm working on this recording, I'm also busy packing my bags and heading east to attend Equine Affair in West Springfield, Massachusetts. This is the big daddy of all horse expos, in this country anyway, and this will be my first time back there since 2019. And uh, the pandemic caused a little disruption to the horse expo, uh, all kinds of trade show businesses, I suppose. So I'm super excited to be headed back there. I'm going to be seeing a lot of old friends um, that I've known for years and look forward to meeting some new people too. So just head to juliegoodnight.com slash events to get more information on all of my upcoming events. And be the first to know when the new ones are added. When you sign up for my weekly newsletter at juliegoodnight.com slash news. You'll also get brand new training articles and podcast episodes as soon as they're released, exclusive deals and updates from me. You can also find me on my social media. I'm at Julie Goodnight on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And now it's time for a brand new segment in the podcast. Before we dive into today's topic, I'll start off by sharing a horse training story of my own with you. So now I'm excited to officially introduce Long Story Short. Today, 
I want to tell you about a half Arab horse I was training about 25, 30 years ago when, when I was uh, quite new in my training business. And this was a very cute little pinto half Arab gelding. I will say he had a lot of white, uh, uh, this horse did. He was mostly white with a little bit of chestnut. And he was three years old when he came to me to be started under saddle. And he, you know, had some halter training, but, I, but minimally. He'd been handled and whatnot. He was gentle. Uh, but he, he was, uh, shall we say, a clean slate as far as training went. He was the get of an Arabian stallion I had trained years before. And that horse was a really cool horse, uh, would be the great subject for another story, uh, another long story short. But he, uh, like his daddy, this little gelding was sweet and gentle. But unlike the stallion, he was extremely flighty, this little pinto half Arab. He was way beyond suspicious and more of what I've come to call superstitious. So there's this certain kind of horse temperament out there that I refer to superstitious. Um, and again, it's just a horse that's a little bit beyond suspicious. And kind of they think everything's out to kill them until proven differently. And these these horses tend to be a little sensitive and a little flighty. Doesn't necessarily mean they're bad horses. In fact, my husband's horse currently is, is a superstitious horse. But when, when something is unfamiliar to him, he just always thinks it's going to kill him. Um, and he can go from zero to 10 instantaneously. Now, you can get him back real easy because he's a well-trained horse. All you got to do is take a hold of him and go, no, mm -mm, no think about this. We, we'll figure it out and he'll comply. But a lot of times these superstitious horses um, too, uh, they end up creating their own reality. And that was certainly the case with this little pinto gelding. And I'll give you an example of that in, in a minute. But these superstitious horses are ones that tend to see more bogeys than normal. And the way that they tend to create their own reality is um, they think something, let's say, something innate is going to attack them. Uh, let's, say, let's say you're trying to teach a horse to walk over a tarp, and he's like snorting and smoke coming out of his nose, and he's scared, and he's trying to leave, and he's paw, and he's, you know, and whatever. And time goes by, and you work with him, and he finally puts his foot on that thing. And then sure enough, that thing snags on the, heel of his shoe and he pulls back and the thing starts following him. Now he's pulling back and the thing's chasing him. That's what I mean by they create their own reality. And so I'll give you an example specific to the little Pinto Arab. He, you know, when I first started working with this horse, I, I got no interest in riding a horse that is spooking and running over the top of you while you're leading him from the ground. If if he's spooking and running over the top of me while I'm leading him from the ground, I'm pretty sure he's going to be a handful if I'm on his back. So I would, I always start at the beginning and work my way forward. And so I was trying to develop not just ground manners in this horse and create a dialogue wherein I tell him to do something and he responds where he starts looking to me for cues. 
but I was also trying to create some confidence in him and, and teach him not to be so spooky. So toward that end, I mean, and you could, it was the easiest horse in the world to set up challenges for because you could do, you could do anything, you know, draw a line in the sand and he would spook at it. And um, so one day I had some ground poles out, like two or three ground poles. And our mission for that day was we were just going to walk calmly over the ground poles, staying in a proper position beside me and not jumping on top of me or running through them or balking, you know, or throwing a, a fit about the ground poles. And I was schooling him hard on his proper leading manners and staying in a, a specific position next to me. And we proceed over the ground poles and with all the courage in the world that this little horse could muster, he slowly picks up one front foot and he sets it over the pole. But then he has a second thought about it and he goes to pull his foot back. And as he pulls his foot back, the toe of his foot scoops up the pole. The pole flops up and hits him in the belly and scares the Jesus out of him. And he just blows up and runs over the top, clinks through the rest of the poles. And he created his own reality in that he was suspicious about this pole. And sure enough, when he put his foot over it, that pole attacked him. And so that's not even the story that I had to tell about this colt. That was just an example of how flighty and spooky this little guy was. Now. As a side thing, you know, I've always wondered, I, I, I've had some experience training Arabs and early in my career, actually, I trained quite a few, but I never was involved in showing them and I, I wasn't that familiar with the way Arabs were trained and, and the way they performed in shows. But I did notice that they always had these horses um, real arched in the neck, super overframed in, in my mind with their faces way behind the vertical when they were riding. Now, that, that went against my grain, uh, and it went against the grain of my training and everything that I'd been taught to do in riding, in particular classical riding. And um, so I, I really struggled to ride and train Arabs properly in that regard. Because to me, when a horse starts coming behind the vertical, I drive them into it. Uh, so I push them out of it. And I, that just happens automatically in my body. I, I couldn't really stop it. And then, and then I realized I didn't really want to ride that way anyway. But so I just, it was just something that I noticed was different. Well, I, and certainly they're beautiful. And, the, and those horses, you know, are so uh, elegantly uh, uh, built in the front end that usually that super arched neck is easy for him. So that was just something uh, on the side thing that I'd always kind of puzzled me. And um, so one day I, I, I've progressed with this little gelding and I'm riding him by now. And, uh, you know, we're working in the big arena at the walk and trot canter. But every day he's spooking at something. Every day now, for like he's been out in this arena for you know, a month or two, and every day he spooks at something. And I was just kind of getting fed up with it. 
And um, so this one day I go out to the arena and I'm riding this cold and I just, I just had reached my limit on his spooking. And I said to myself and to the horse, by goodness, we are going to go one time around this arena today without spooking. If it kills me, we will, if, if I will, I will stay out here all day until you go one time around this arena without spooking. And I, and I was mad and I took a hold of him. And in my impatience, I gathered up those reins tight. I asked him to place his chin squarely on his chest and around the pen we went with his head down uh, so low that he was staring at the dirt right in front of him. And by George, he did not spook or even raise his head or tense a muscle all the way around. And then I realized, I had this light bulb moment where I realized by not allowing him to look around, he failed to find anything to be superstitious about. You know, back in the olden days, it was a common training technique to blindfold horses uh, as a way to make them helpless, to make them dependent and submissive. And when you blind the horse, you effectively take away his flight response. He might run blindly if, if you allowed him to. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely would cause that kind of response in a horse. But today we have much better ways of doing things and a greater understanding of the horse's instinctive behaviors. And these kinds of tactics are rarely used anymore. Um, however, by inhibiting this flighty horse's ability to look around excessively, I hit on the very thing he needed to be able to keep his fear at bay. So since then, by the way, decades have passed since then, and I've worked with hundreds of horses, maybe thousands of horses, and I've seen time and time again in almost every clinic I do and almost every time I'm working with horses that when it comes to the horses that are consumed with anxiety, they tend to be looking all about looking away from the handler, sometimes acting as if they don't see the handler. They're looking outside the pen. They're searching their surroundings uh, on a trail ride. They're working themselves up into a tizzy in this process. And countless times, countless times, I've seen these very same horses calm down within minutes and become focused and happy and calm when you curtail their frantic searching. And this brings me to today's topic. Teaching a horse to calm down and focus, or as I like to call it, kindergarten for horses. You don't go to kindergarten to learn how to do algebra and chemistry, by the way. Kindergarten teaches young students to sit at their desk, to keep their hands to themselves, to walk in a single file line, and to raise your hand when you want to talk. In my kindergarten for horses, I teach them to stand still when I ask them to, not moving around impulsively whenever they want. I teach them to keep their nose in front of their chest at all times when they're being handled or ridden. And to me, these are very simple, fundamental ground manners that make a horse safe and enjoyable to be around. In this process, the horse will come to understand that there are clear expectations of their behavior. They'll learn important boundaries and they'll learn to focus on me 
and shut out all the distractions in their surroundings. Doesn't that sound pretty good? Also, in my What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this episode, I'll answer questions from listeners about etiquette for correcting bad behavior in someone else's horse, if horses move into pressure or away from pressure, and about restarting an older horse. Now, let's get started on today's topic. You've heard me talk about this a lot in my podcast, in my blog, in tons of YouTube videos. I teach horses within just a few minutes of training not to look around excessively and to either, quote, focus on me or focus on nothing. Why? Well, you know, Horses that are looking excessively around are really frantically searching for something to be afraid of. Their anxiety is getting the best of them. Or sometimes they're actually looking for an exit. They're looking for the best way out of this situation they don't want to be in. And in that case, uh, when they're looking for an exit, it's also telling you that this horse has absolutely no intention of staying here with you. So there's very little training that's going to happen um, with a horse that is looking for the exit. He, he has no commitment uh, to being with you, let alone want to be with you. So I often refer to what I call the dark alley at night theory. So just imagine, if you would, that you're alone in a strange city. It's late at night and you are walking down a dark alley and you're walking along and it's creepy and you're hearing little noises here and there behind you and um, all of a sudden something behind you kind of bangs and so you glance back and you sort of pick up your pace and walk a little bit faster and then you look back again and you walk a little bit faster. Pretty soon you're thinking about, I can't wait to get out of this situation. I'm getting more and more scared. Well, I'm imagining there's something behind me now. Next thing you know, you're running full blast down the alley as fast as you can go. And that's often how a horse's fear will progress. Um, so they, they start kind of frantically looking around um, because they're frightened. And the more they look around, the more frantic they become, the more frightened they become. And so it's what sometimes the behaviorist refers to as a functional circle of behavior. So there's just sort of trapped in this behavior where things are getting scarier and scarier and scarier by the minute. And by the way, no training, again, as I said, no training is going to occur. No communication back and forth is going to occur while a horse's mind is, is so uh, busily um, involved in this, this frantic kind of searching behavior. So I have found, like I shared with the story of the little uh, half-Arab pinto gelding, um, that when you disallow this excessive looking around, it also brings, it, it does a couple of different things to the horse's state of mind. One is they quit searching and they immediately come to a place of calmness. So that's the main benefit from it. So now instead of running down that dark alley and letting the fear build and build and build, 
they are just out of the dark alley and they're in a safe place and they're they're no longer um, hearing and imagining all those things. So it brings them to a, a, a calmer state right away. Uh, so you get almost an immediate reward. Um, it's a reward for you and a reward for the horse, by the way, because no horse wants to feel afraid. No horse likes having that kind of anxiety in his life. It's just that they don't really know the way out of it. One of the other things that happens in this process is that the horse begins to look to you for protection. The horse begins to look to you as a safe place to be. You seem to be in control of things. And they also, in their learning of what you're expecting from them, I'll explain that process in a minute, as the horse starts learning that there are boundaries he has to abide by that disallow him from looking around and he starts calming down because he doesn't have that gasoline being thrown on the fire of that searching behavior. Um, then the next thing that happens is he starts looking to you and that's what you actually want. So instead of him being a, a distracted horse that's frantically looking around and building an anxiety, he's now a calmer horse who is looking to you for all the answers. And that's exactly what you want. So what are my expectations of a horse in terms of not looking around? And I know, you know, to some of you, that might sound a lot like what I was talking about earlier back in the day when they used to blindfold horses. But no, I'm not doing anything to inhibit the horse's vision at all. Um, I, I have very clear boundaries and clear expectations of the horse's behavior that I can communicate to him really literally within seconds if I've got a halter and a lead rope. And first of all, let's talk about the clear boundaries. So I like to imagine when I'm handling a horse either from the ground or I'm riding the horse and I'm up on his back from the saddle, I imagine that there are two parallel lines coming out forward from his point of shoulder on each side. Now, the width of your horse's point of shoulders is pretty similar to your, the width of your shoulders. So if you just yourself imagine uh, two parallel lines coming out from your shoulders, those are the boundaries for my horse's nose. He has to keep his nose within those two lines. And I am very clear on where that lo those lines are in my mind. And anytime he crosses that line, if I'm on the ground, I'm just going to bump the lead rope a little bit, bump the halter. And if I'm in the saddle, I'm just going to bump the opposite rein. So in other words, when his nose crosses that line, he meets a boundary. The rein is not going with you. And same thing with the halter. When he crosses that line, I'm actually, the minute his nose is crossing the line, I'm just going to kind of bump up a little bit on the rope so he meets a boundary there. Also, I'm not pulling. I'm just giving a slight bump of the lead or a slight bump of the rein, which has a built-in release to it. So as soon as the horse feels that boundary, he brings his nose back towards center and he's already gotten a release as he comes back towards center. So that's why he learns, uh, he can learn lightning fast where these boundaries are. And so, and again, if, you're, if your timing is good and your pressure is appropriate, within seconds, literally, the horse will learn where that line is and you'll see him start thinking about it. 
Well, now he's thinking. So at least he's not frantically searching about anymore. He started to think about um, the boundary. He's starting to think about what you're doing in relationship to what he's doing. In other words, he's becoming engaged with you. And in very short order, he starts moving his nose towards the boundary, then bringing it back. He starts self-correcting. And in that process, he learns even more. He learns the bump will not come if he doesn't cross the line. And, and then he starts gaining confidence because he feels like he's starting to understand that there is a boundary there. And, and when I act a certain way, this will happen. But when I act another way, everything's good for me. And so that gives him even more confidence. And now he's thinking all in the right uh, direction along with you. And um, pretty soon he just stops looking around and drops that head and takes a deep breath. And he's like, okay, I seem to be stuck here in this situation, but you know what? I understand this situation. It feels safe to me. This person setting these boundaries seems like she knows what she's doing. She's very clear. I can trust that her behavior will be consistent and appropriate and that I'll get this when I do that and I'll get that when I do this. And so the horse starts building confidence in all this way. Again, if you're up in the saddle, same process. So just bump the opposite rein until the horse's nose comes back to center. Do not pull on the rein. Um, do not try to hold the horse's nose. Do not try to prevent him from crossing a line. Just simply correct him when you do. So the end result is that when you rule out excessive looking about, the horse's anxiety diminishes. Within a few minutes, the horse shifts his focus to you or he just kind of zones out a little bit in that way that we love horses to do. You know, for instance, um, let's say I'm riding my horse and I stop to uh, talk to somebody or maybe I stop to get something out of my pack and, and um, do something. I would like my horse to just kind of put his head down and check out. I don't want him being busy with his feet. I don't want him looking all around. I want him to just kind of patiently wait there, not thinking about much at all, kind of resting his brain a little bit until I'm ready to ask him to do something. So we love it when horses um, just kind of check out and be patient when we, when we need them to wait on us. Um, so you'll, you'll notice these kinds of changes in, in the horse right away. The horse's posture will change. You'll see a, cal a much calmer demeanor. You'll see a willingness not just to stay here with you, but to actually want to be with you because it feels safe. And the horse will have more interest in you and what you are doing um, than in all his surroundings around him. So remember, the purpose of this exercise is not to limit the horse's ability to see things. Because the way the horse's eyes are on the side of his head and the way that he's got that super long neck stretching that big old wide head out in front of him, all he has to do is slightly turn his nose in either direction to be able to see a complete 360 around him. So we're not doing anything that limits or prohibits the ability of the horse to see 360 degrees around him. It's just the excessive looking about um, that we are, are dealing with and that 
has a way when you when you rule out that excessive looking around, it has a way of pulling that horse back from the brink of anxiety and pulling him back from a hyperactive imagination. As I said, no horse wants to be afraid and anxious, but they are fear-based animals. And to me, training is often about giving the horse tools to manage its own anxiety, to teach him where calmness is, and to teach him that he can trust me to keep him safe. Those are the main principles of my training, uh, particularly with a nervous or um, a horse with a high fear level. So once a horse has learned to stay calm and focused, which can literally happen within a few minutes, if your timing is good and you, and if you use the appropriate pressure. Um, but once you've done that, you, you won't need these corrections anymore. Once the horse trusts you enough and understands your clear boundaries and your clear expectations, he finds safety and comfort in being with you. And all of that searching behavior just goes away. I hope that helps you understand a little more about why your horse's focus and calmness is important and how you can achieve it. Now, let's switch gears. I'd like to spotlight some of your stories from our Horse Goals or Bust program. In my blog this month, I shared my own goals and accomplishments with you, both in my horse life and in my personal adventures. If you subscribe to my newsletter, you've already seen all of that. It's been incredibly rewarding to me to hear all of your stories you've shared with me this year, both the highs and the lows. And, and I love hearing not only about your accomplishments, but about your setbacks too and how you've overcome them. And for me to be a part of your journey has really just been super fun and rewarding. So here are just a few highlights from our tribe. These are stories shared on our Horse Goals or Bust Facebook group. And uh, you might want to check out the show notes for links to that Facebook group. So our first story comes from Susan. And she says, good morning. I'm proud to share that my goal this summer was to make four solo excursions with my best friend, Huey. This morning, we will complete that goal with a trail ride meetup in the Shenandoah Mountains. Each excursion has been fantastic. And I realized that the hardest part for me is hearing him whinny in the trailer when I go over a bump. We've made so much progress in our riding and in our relationship this summer. I'll be seeing Julie at Sea Lazy U on October 5th. And indeed she did. Um, and I love this because I love the specific goal that Susan had of doing uh, four solo excursions with her horse. And wow, what an accomplishment. And, you know, the planning that went into it and the goal setting from the beginning was such a big part of that. And we enjoyed having you at the uh, clinic at Sea Lazy U as well. And I hope that just capped off your riding season, Susan. So thanks for sharing. And next, another one of my favorite stories comes from Nancy. And Nancy uh, is someone I know well. You'll You'll hear why in a minute. But um, Nancy says, I'm happy to report that I've completed my primary goal for this year, riding with Julie in Ireland. I continued to second guess myself up to the very last minute, wondering if I'd done enough pre-trip prep, i.e. time spent in the saddle and on fitness. As it turned out, I had no problem keeping up with the younger folks and felt very confident in the saddle. 
It was truly an amazing journey on so many levels, meeting amazing women, experiencing the stunning Irish countryside and special cultural activities, and let's not forget, riding beautiful Connemara ponies. Special thanks to Julie, T. Cody, and Koch. Now, I'm going to brag on Nancy. By the way, she included this incredibly beautiful photograph of her sitting on this Connemara pony on the ocean. And you will see that she's a lovely rider. And you won't be able to see it in this photograph. And Nancy's not shy about sharing her age. But she's well into her 70s. And she was the oldest person on the on the tour by more than a few years. So when she said she was worried about it, you can see why. But I have to say she was one of the fittest people on the ride. She was one of the best riders on the ride and she had a great time. Um, so it, it was fabulous. She got along great with her horse and she certainly uh, could could keep up with with the toughest of us. So that was fun to have her. Also, someone I've known for a while, had in clinics and one of my online coaching students, Marty. And Marty actually <laughs> sent in three updates. Marty is always very thorough. And uh, Marty says, I am a 71-year-old post-total knee replacement rider who wasn't terribly adventurous in the best of times. All I've been doing is walking and some trotting in an arena or ring Groundwork is no problem. Yesterday on the way to the barn, I listened to Julie's most recent podcast and she mentioned riding Annie bareback. So I decided to hop on my pony, Nigel, with just a bareback pad since he is easy to mount using a mounting block. We did a lot of walking and a teeny bit of trotting. I've made myself a goal of riding the English dressage test A and B bareback just for my own fun. Then she sent a second update that said, Today, I rode the intro A test, totally bareback, no pad. I probably won't do that again, at least without my riding pants. It wasn't pretty, not great patterns, and he broke gate in a trotted 20-meter circle, but we did it. Next up, intro B. And then our final update. Today, I did intro test A and B. The geometry wasn't stellar, but we did it. Intro C, you say, it won't happen. Will not be cantering bareback, but I accomplished my goals. So good for you, Marty. Um, yes, you might not uh, think of yourself as adventurous, but you are persistent and you always set great goals and then you go out and do them. So I say that puts you in, in an adventurous category. Next story comes from Lynn and she says, I did it. My second show in a lifetime. I'm not sure there will be a third but I made my goal for this year. <laughs> I love that one. And then uh, finally, uh, we'll hear from Deborah, And she says, when I started working on my horse goals for this year, I was still having some anxiety about riding my mare with people I didn't know well, because I was never sure how she would react. I was determined to continue building the trust between us so that I could participate in a clinic with Julie Goodnight in March and then participate in at least two trail-challenged rides with a club I joined. This past weekend, I rode in my third trail-challenged ride with the Texas Trail Challenge Club at a spectacular ranch near Llano, Texas. Each ride has been better than the previous. My mare is finding calm, 
as we go down the trail. And while we may not always do well on some of the obstacles, she's always willing to give it a try for me. On the ride this past weekend, one of the obstacles was in hand where we had to send slash lead our horse into the ditch along the trail while we stayed on the trail and then have the horse stop straight at the marker. Because of the skills I learned from Julie during the clinic this year and from following her online, my mare and I received a perfect score at this obstacle. It was nice to get a good score. It was great to see how well my horse paid attention to my cues and what we were doing. Doing well on the obstacles is not part of my goals. Building the trust with my horse is. I'm signed up for one more trail challenge ride this year, so I've met my goal and then some. Thank you to Julie for setting up this program. I feel like it's helped me really feel confident about my work with my horse and encouraged me to keep going even when I had a setback. Wow, uh, Deborah, that was an awesome story. And it just, I can't even begin to tell you how much it thrills me that I had some small part in your challenge. I remember you and your horse from the clinic and what a nice, lovely pair you made. And your story certainly is inspirational, although not surprising because you're an ambitious rider. So that's awesome to hear. And finally, we have a story from Faye. And she says, so my goal this year was simple. Ride my horse bareback. I set up a plan, talked with my trainer, and then fractured my wrist in February, falling on black ice. Then May came along and I started riding again with caution, but noticed things had changed between my gilding and myself. My confidence was not there anymore, and it took many weeks to find it again. Then the spook happened and lack of confidence returned. But we ventured out off property on a couple of trail rides, and I found the courage to sit on my horse bareback. And now I know that riding on his back without a saddle is very uncomfortable, and I need to set a new goal for next year. (laughs) I don't consider it a bust, but a lesson learned. Julie, thanks for always sharing your stories and inspiration. Also, congratulations on Annie's pregnancy. Looking forward to next year. And I just want to say, Faye, I love that story. And I don't love it that you you slipped on the ice and broke your wrist. But I think it's an important, realistic story for everyone. Uh, first of all, I think it's hilarious that you said you need a new goal because your horse is not comfortable to ride bareback. Um, and that's a good thing to work out on your goals worksheet. But I, I just, I appreciate your candor on how challenging confidence can be after an injury, even though the injury had nothing to do with riding, and also how your horse responds when your confidence wanes and um, how hard that is to turn around, but you did that. So I, I, I think far from being a bust that you did learn a lot and um, you, you learned how to regain your confidence and you learned how important that is for your horse So uh, I say you scored a big one this year on your goals. So I look forward to hearing more about your goals for next year. And now it's time for my favorite segment. What the hey? Q&A. Each month, we pick a few unique questions from our listeners and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a question for What the Hey? 
please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. The first question today comes from Juliana. Hi, Julie and Julie's team. I would love some feedback on the etiquette of correcting poor or disobedient behavior when leasing a horse and the horse's owner is around and appears to do things differently, parentheses, as in under correcting, in my opinion. I am also wondering what is appropriate when riding a friend's horse or traveling and riding someone else's horse. My assumption is to not do much differently. So I guess my follow-up question is, how do I get over my fear and hyper-awareness of the owner's thoughts and feelings about my horsemanship? I find myself correcting behaviors differently when they are around. I think my lack of experience with horses is making me lack confidence in this area. Any words of wisdom you can share? Thank you so much, and I love your podcast. Well, thank you, Juliana. And, um, you know, correcting other people's horses is definitely a touchy subject. And I think, uh, while I think it's good that you ask, and it's something that we can kind of discuss etiquette-wise, in terms of how it relates to your confidence and um, your concern about other people judging you, I think that's a separate subject and um, possibly one uh, you might be more qualified to answer than me. But when it comes to correcting other people's horses, you know, keep in mind first and foremost that any horse's relationship with a person is based on that individual and horses are perfectly capable of acting one way around one person and differently for someone else. They're more clever than people in this regard. You know, it's not at all uncommon to see a horse that's very, very naughty for his owner, but in the trainer's presence, the horse is a perfect angel. Horses are very discerning about people and their differences. So just because the owner of the horse, let's say, if I'm reading your, your message correctly, the owner of the horse is more indulgent and allows certain behaviors, like less maybe allows the horse to crowd her space or put his mouth on her or whatever, something that you disallow in your relationship with that horse. That horse will learn. It can act one way around one person, but he has to act differently around another. Now, is this great for the horse? No. And do horses prefer consistency? Absolutely. Do horses have better behavior and less anxiety when they're handled consistently by all people? Absolutely. Um, without question, that is true. So it's not a good situation, but in, in the situation you're in, I would just bite your tongue and look the other way when you're dealing with the horse's owner. Um, hopefully she's not around much. If it gets to the point that the horse's behavior is so compromised that it's deteriorating to the point of the horse being unsafe or unpleasant, then this might not be a tenable leasing situation. You might have to look elsewhere. So I, I learned a long time ago that there's nothing I can do to help people if they're not interested in and asking for my help. It's very frustrating especially when I see somebody doing something dangerous with a horse or even when I just see a messy matter that I could easily clear up with just a little bit of information. But 
without fail, when you offer somebody unwanted advice about a horse, it falls on deaf ears or worse. Um, you know, they take it out on you or they take it out on the horse or they close their mind to help. So I, it, it's, it's been a lesson I've learned again and again and again throughout my career. I've learned it pretty thoroughly by now, but there are still, there are still times when the temptation is great um, to want to try to help someone. But if they're not asking for help, it isn't going to happen. You know, for me, it's a little different given that I'm a professional horse trainer. And in most instances, if I'm dealing with a horse, it's because they're looking for my help. I wouldn't be handling a horse that someone didn't ask me to. But any horse that I handle, I'm going to train the same way, including corrections for bad behavior or for crossing boundaries or anything that in my mind is unsafe or unmannerly. So boundaries are a great example of this. If I'm around a horse and that horse invades my personal boundary, I'm going to instantly defend my boundary. So the horse is going to instantly know he's not allowed to come that close to me. And any horse I engage with is going to learn that about me within a minute. And oddly enough, horses like that because when things are clear and easy to understand, horses are a lot happier and a lot calmer. So, you know, that's going to be something that is sorted out between the horse and I just immediately. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop defending my boundary just because I was worried about offending the owner or whatever. If I didn't think I had the credibility of a standing to correct the horse, I wouldn't be near him. Once I'm engaged with the horse, I'm going to handle the horse my way. But again, that is generally a situation where somebody has asked for my help. So peer-to-peer, and if you're just riding a friend's horse, I would just ask them, how do you want me to handle this situation? Is there anything special I need to know about your horse? How does he like the cue for canter? Tell me, you know, give me as much information as you can. And the horse's owner, by the way, has the greatest responsibility to protect her horse and to maintain its training and manners. So she should be forthcoming and proactive in giving you all the information on how to handle certain situations for the horse. Now, worrying about what other people think of you or how they are judging you, that's a whole separate subject. I, I get what you're saying that it's awkward when you're in this kind of situation where you're riding somebody else's horse and that somebody else is standing right there watching you. I, I know, <laughs> I mean, I can relate to that in other ways. Um, it's like when you're docking a boat, you're bringing a big boat into a marina and there are a dozen people standing on the dock watching you, wondering if you're going to succeed or fail. Are you going to hit the dock or are you going to just drive it in smoothly? And you know they're all watching and, and you know they're secretly hoping to see a wreck. Um, and you know they're all forming an opinion, particularly if you happen to be a female captain of the boat. They're all forming an opinion on whether or not you, you have the credibility to drive that boat. So, like, I totally get what you're, what you're saying. Um, but I think that's something that can, can be addressed just, you know, through um, a lot of introspection and uh, maybe listening to some confidence building things. Um, but the truth is, 
you have no control over what somebody else thinks at all, let alone what they think about you. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter what they think about you. What really matters is what you think about you. Do you feel like you're doing things right? Do you have a full understanding of the situation that you're dealing with with the horse? Do you have confidence in your ability to handle that situation? And if you ask yourself all those questions and the answer to them is yes, then you have no need to worry about what other people think because you know you're on the right track. So I think that it's great if we could handle all situations with that much confidence. And I know that's sometimes challenging to do, but that's the way I look at it. And that's what I I try to do in situations. I do care about what other people think about me, but if I have confidence in myself and I feel good about the way I'm doing things and about how I could or would justify them, um, then I, I have far less concern about what somebody else thinks. So don't forget, Juliana, it's a lifelong journey you're on. No matter how soon or late you get started on this horsemanship thing, you will be continually learning. So keep studying, keep refining your skills, um, but you should also be growing in your confidence as you gain more experience on different horses in different situations, as I know you have then you will also be gaining confidence in your ability and your knowledge. So keep an open mind to new and different ways of doing things, but be your own judge of what techniques you use and what gives you success and what you feel the most confident about. Our next question is from Anne. I have read a lot about the fact that horses learn from release of pressure and timing is critical as described in one of your great articles. However, I've also read that horses are, quote, into pressure, unquote, animals, and that they move towards pressure. So I'm confused. I've watched different videos of people teaching horses to move towards the mounting block, for example, and some tap the horse on the near side hip and others on the offside. So does it really matter which you use as long as you stop the tapping when the horse gives the right response? Thanks in advance. I tried to keep this as succinct as possible, but this was the best I could do. Well, first of all, let me say, Anne, you did a stellar job at keeping this succinct. And there is just enough information there for me to answer your question, um, but not too much that it takes me 20 minutes to read it. Also, it cracks me up your question because I remember reading decades ago something about horses being into pressure animals. And I remember specifically how much that confused me. Now, I was already a horse trainer uh, by then, and I was studying and consuming information on behavior and training as much as I could, as well as practicing it on a daily basis. And I remember reading somewhere, I do not believe it was from a behavior uh, textbook or research uh, paper, I believe it might have even been um, from Monty Roberts' book or something like that, where a statement was made about horses being into pressure animals. I'm pretty sure it was not a behaviorist because that's not generally how things would be stated by a behaviorist. But I was also puzzled by that. And I spent a lot of time thinking it through and researching. 
and I came to the following conclusion. As I like to often say in clinics, um, most of what I teach is stuff I learned from someone else, not any one someone else, but many, 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 many someone else's. And um, I have very few original thoughts, but when I do have original thoughts, I like to claim them. So this is something that I thought through myself. I've not seen this specifically addressed in any kind of equine behavior research that I've seen, but this is what I think I know. What is the difference between into pressure and away from pressure animals? And are horses one or the other or both? Well, I came, uh, you know, short story is I came to the conclusion that horses are both into pressure and away from pressure animals. Now, let's think about it in this way. The number one characteristic and the most defining characteristic of the horse is that he is a flight animal. So flight is the horse's most compelling response to danger. Now, would you say flight is moving into pressure or away from pressure? Well, to me, I think it's clearly moving away from pressure, right? So the pressure is whatever's frightening the horse. And the flight response involves a 180 degree turn and running as fast as you can away from that thing. So that's an away from pressure response. But think about the horse that is kicking another horse. Think about the bully or dominant horse who's actually kicking double barrels at another horse and backing into him and squealing at the same time. Is that horse moving into pressure or away from pressure? He's moving into pressure. So if I walk up next to a horse and startle the horse and the horse startles because he didn't see me or he didn't notice me there and I suddenly reached out and touched him and he kicked out at me, is he moving into pressure? away from pressure. Well, in that moment, he's moving into pressure when he kicks out at me. But the next thing that follows is him running away because he was startled. So he's uh, moving away from pressure. So this is the way that I um, started thinking this through. So some responses are into pressure, while other responses are moving away from pressure. Now, there are many behaviors of the horse that are moving into pressure. Kicking is one. If you've ever seen a mare in heat that wants to lean her hip against something or back into something, um, that is an instinctive urge she feels around reproduction and wanting to, um, you know, move into the stallion or or back into the stallion. So um, that's moving into pressure. Also, horses mutually groom each other and they use pretty heavy uh, massaging pressure with their teeth, deep pressure massaging of their buddy horse. And again, um, that horse is moving into pressure. Horses, sometimes when you train, uh, teach horses to, uh, let's say, hold their feet up for the farrier, they learn to lean and push on you. Horses do like to lean and push and pull, um, but they also move away from pressure in certain instances. Now, let me give you a couple of more ways to think about pressure. First, let me give you another really great example of of how horses can be into pressure animals. If you've ever been around young foals, they love to be scratched and petted. 
and they will learn to move into you and push into you to get you to scratch them. And they like to be scratched hard. So in very short order, if you mishandle a foal, you teach them to push on you and lean on you and move into pressure. Now, keep in mind that most trained responses in the adult riding horse are going to involve that horse moving away from pressure, preferably the lightest pressure. You, uh, we also call that yielding to pressure. So giving to pressure, moving away from pressure. Now, as we raise that young baby horse and we unknowingly overhandle him, over desensitize him and scratch on him to the point where we teach him to lean, lean into pressure and move into pressure. And then when it comes time to train that horse to be ridden, everything we're going to be teaching the horse involves it moving away from light pressure. We have set up a, a terrible dynamic there. So yes, horses learn through pressure and release. And they learn by making associations between a cue, which is the pressure, and a response. And that's, by the way, where the timing and using the adequate amount of pressure comes into play. So let's understand first and foremost that there is an important distinction between a learned response and instinctive behavior. So when that startled horse kicked out at me because he was unexpectedly touched on the side, uh, in that moment, he was moving into pressure. But when I startled him and he turned around and what ran away from me, he was moving away from pressure. And that was all done through instinctive behavior. But if the horse learns that um, when he moves towards me, I will scratch him and reward him with a pleasurable feeling. Um, then he learns to move into pressure when you touch him. So that's a learned response. And so this is the age old question of nature versus nurture. We have a pretty good understanding of the instinctive behaviors of horses by now. And I'm sure there's more to be learned. But when you have a pretty thorough understanding of a horse's instinctive behavior, it makes it slightly easier to distinguish between learned behavior and instinctive behavior. So instinctive behaviors are those behaviors that were virtually fully formed at birth. And learned behaviors are everything that comes after that. And in the horse, the learned behaviors happen fast and from the youngest age. So horses are learning machines throughout their entire life but they learn at the greatest rate when they're young and know nothing. So they're learning every second of every day and with every interaction they make. And so it's very easy to create a learned response in a young horse to move into pressure. So, um, you know, one more just quick thing to understand about pressure, the pressure that we use on horses, is that there's also a difference in my mind between static pressure and dynamic pressure. So static means unchanging and dynamic means constantly changing. So if I go up and I, uh, well, let's, uh, let me give you a, a real um, common example. Let's say I pick up a horse's front foot and I'm holding it up like I'm cleaning it or like the farrier is trimming it. 
And if I'm leaning pressure onto the horse in a static way while I'm holding that foot up, pretty soon that horse will start leaning back into me. And anytime you just put static, unchanging pressure on a horse, he will start moving into it. But when you use dynamic pulsating pressure, which can be infinitely lighter than that static pressure you were just using a minute ago, um, the horse will move easily away from it. So let's say I'm grooming a horse and I want him to step away from me. Uh, He's maybe crowded me too close to the uh, fence or something and I need him to step away to the side. Um, So I take my index finger and I just lightly touch his hairs at his rib cage and and maybe the skin. And I just give a little pulsating uh, pressure there on his ribs. And then maybe I cluck. He will easily step away from that. But if I go over there and I put my whole hand on that horse's rib and I just start pushing into it in a static way, he'll start actually leaning into me before he'll step away. So that is also another really sort of intricate way for you to think about this into pressure and away from pressure uh, thing about horses. Horses tend to move into static or unchanging pressure, yet they move away from light and dynamic pressure. The old, uh, you know, the fly lands on his hair coat and he can shake that part of his body. Um, that's, that's kind of the idea that we're getting there. So thanks for that very excellent question. So our final question today comes from Sheila. And she says, hi, Julie. I have a horse that I purchased in the spring of 2020 from a gentleman who said he bought him from a feed yard in Kansas. So by the way, that was three years ago she purchased this horse. I have watched your daily dose of horsemanship videos on YouTube and I have your training videos along with a library membership to your training library. I listened to your podcast and did as you suggested in an episode to try to get the background information of his previous training and how much he had been ridden before I bought him. I found out that he was indeed briefly at a feed yard. He had injured his back leg and was sold in a quick sale, then sold again to the gentleman I bought him from. In looking into his past further, I found that he was involved in a case of animal neglect and hoarding situation that resulted in jail time for the offenders. I found that he was head shy and not very trusting. I have spent a lot of time just getting him to let me approach him. He is now a 10-year-old gelding and the low man in our herd. My question for you is, would you restart this horse differently? Could you reference a good place to start? I'm afraid of coming across to him as too aggressive and losing all of the progress that we have made. I value your opinion. Thank you for your time, Sheila. Now, again, Sheila was somewhat succinct here, (laughs) succinct enough that I don't really know what she's done other than address this issue of him being difficult to approach. And also, if I read between the lines, she's had this horse for three years. And um, so if after three years, you are thinking about restarting, then I would say you have not made adequate progress with this horse. And, and that, that ties into something I've been seeing lately 
at some clinics that I've done, uh, training clinics that I've done. So I want to get into that um, for a moment, in a moment. But so would I do something differently? Uh, yes, I think I would. And I will explain. Um, I, your question, could you reference a good place to start, I think is a good one. And I'll answer that. But when you say I'm afraid of coming across as too aggressive and losing all of the progress that we have made, it really doesn't sound to me like you've made much progress. And so I think, um, you know, horse trainers would never have that kind of time frame in order to make progress with a horse. You as a, the customer would never pay a horse trainer for that long to have not made some very significant training. I would expect after three years of training, to have a trained, finished horse in spite of the horse coming uh, with some challenges. So let me just clarify some of my thinking here. So first of all, um, I'm going to use air quotes here, but restarting doesn't really mean much to me. And so therefore having a specific entry point or uh, let's see how you phrase it, a, a good reference place to start. I always evaluate each horse on its own behavior, on the responses to my interactions with the horse. I would also factor in the horse's age, its temperament, and its history, whatever I happen to know or whatever you, you the owner, happen to know. I would put all of that together, but mostly I would go on what's right in front of me at that moment um, and how the horse is responding in the moment that I'm engaging him. So another reason why restarting doesn't really mean much to me is that to me, there is a very specific priority or you might think of it as a hierarchy as to what's important to me in terms of handling and riding a horse. And when I say what's important to me, I mean in terms of the horse's cooperation the horse's um, acceptance, its calmness, its ability to think, and how safe the horse is to be around. So all of these things, um, to me, create a hierarchy of training. So, um, for example, if a horse is not well-mannered and safe and pleasant to handle from the ground, I'm not really that interested in riding him. So as I talked about in the very beginning of this podcast with the young uh, Pinto Arabian, um, when he's blowing up and having panic attacks from the ground and running over the top of me, I'm really not interested in a riding horse that's behaving in that way with me on the ground. So I would start there. If the youngster is being started under saddle and it's still kicking out it, at the saddle and bucking the saddle, again, I'm not very interested in riding him. So he could have been ridden priv previously. So you could tell me and show me concrete evidence that the horse was broken trained. But if I'm getting that reaction here today, when I put the saddle on him, I'm not interested in getting on him until we work through that problem. So toward this end, I would restart every single horse I encountered by uh, plugging away through the basics until I found a sticky place. Uh, you know, you can use the red light, green light, yellow light theory. Uh, I would start from the beginning, just handling the horse from the ground, asking him to do this, asking him to do that, do that, plugging away through the basics 
until I hit a yellow light or a red light. And anytime I hit a place of resistance, I want to work through that point of resistance before moving on. Now, there might occasionally be an exemption to that. Like, let's say, let's say this horse, you said this horse is head shy. So let's say um, I'm moving along in this evaluation process and everything else is green light, green light, green light. But I go to put that bridle on and he shows me he is indeed very head shy. Well, that's possibly going to take a while. The horse is going to have to get better at that over time. And I, I might just figure out a way to get that bridle on and then proceed with my evaluation, making note that we need to work on that. We need a training plan to work on that head shyness. But if I was still getting green lights beyond the head shyness, I would still keep going on the rest of it. But if I, if I meet a point of great resistance with the horse, I want to work through that before moving on. And that's probably what you've been doing for the last three years. But let me give you some food for thought on this deal. Um, and this is specifically regarding some recent horses I've worked with in clinics that kind of sound to me like it, it may relate to your situation in terms of not really making significant progress with this horse. So you've got a horse that is not interested in people, probably has good reason, um, but he's not interested in you. But you want to, quote, give him time to come to me. So, um, and this, these are the situations I've seen uh, recently with a couple of um, similar situations. One involving a very, very young horse that's just not even halter broke yet. And another involving uh, one that's in under saddle training. So if you have a horse that has uh, a good reason not to want to be around people and you approach it with giving the horse time to come to you or to wait until he accepts you, you have to be willing to accept the fact that that may never happen. He has no reason to want to be with people. Give him one reason why he should do that. So there are situations where when a horse is, you, you mentioned the horse does not want to be approached. Um, so I, I guess that means he's hard to catch. And if you can't catch him and approach him, you can't really do any training with him. Um, so if I could just force this issue this one time and get that halter on that horse and get him caught, and then in doing that, I can get past his point of resistance and prove to him beyond a shadow of, of a doubt that I am good for him. Um, then in a matter of hours or days or weeks, I've moved past that one issue and I'm really moving forward with the horse's training because I can lay hands on him. I can pet him. I can reward him. I can. I can add pressure. I can take pressure away. The horse begins learning. The begins We begin developing trust with each other and creating a dialogue between us. And all of that came about because just on that one instance, I forced the issue. So let me give you a specific example with this um, yearling colt that I was helping with recently. Now, this colt had been transported by several different people uh, halfway across the country without even really being halter broke. So he, he kind of got jerked off his home farm and herded into a trailer and hauled 
a certain distance and then unloaded into a pen and then another trailer backed in and they ran him into the trailer again. And so this, this went on two or three times until he got to Colorado. And needless to say, he wanted nothing to do with people. And so the person that was training this horse, their, her, her first goal was to really just get a halter on the horse and begin halter training it. And, you, you know, nothing can really be accomplished until you can lay hands on the horse. So she had the horse in a small catch pen. I mean, really small. Um, I'm going to say, you know, not even 10 feet across. And she was doing some advance and, and retreat where she would approach the horse. And if the horse would turn and look at her, she'd walk away. And that was good. And then she she kind of did that a little bit too much without advancing, getting closer and closer to the horse. And so what happens then, if you if you do too many repetitions in, a, in an advance and retreat desensitizing scenario, if you do too many repetitions without advancing farther, then the horse just starts thinking he's training you to go away from him. So that horse, you could see the horse was starting to learn, oh, all I got to do is look at her and she goes away. So that's what you want the horse to learn at first. But then you want to go farther and farther, closer and closer to the horse to where you're touching him. And you want to kind of do that every time, get advancing and gaining territory with every approach. But she spent too long reinforcing that turning and him going away from her so that she basically just trained that response into him. Well, then she started doing the same thing with the halter and she would approach with the halter like she was going to put it on. And then if he would move towards, move his nose towards the halter, she would take it away and walk away. Now that's good and classic release of pressure in an advance and retreat scenario. However, what happened was she continued making repetition after repetition after repetition without advancing the halter onto the horse so that essentially what began to happen was she was training the horse to pull away from the halter. And there, there were several points as I was watching along the way where she had opportunities to kind of snag that horse into the halter. And from there, she could have significantly advance the horse's training, but she instead let the horse set the agenda and um, basically just succeeded in really training the horse to pull away from her. Um, so over time, she basically was teaching this horse to never be caught because of how much time she was giving uh, without asking a little bit more from the horse, a little bit more concession. So uh, same thing uh, I saw happen recently with somebody uh, we were uh, working on saddling horses for the, for the very first time and all the desensitizing that has to occur there. And uh, basically with just um, a little bit of inaccurate technique, instead of training this horse to accept the saddle being put on its back, she was training the horse to pull away from the saddle being put on his back. And through multiple repetitions of that, the horse was just simply responding in the way she was training it to do, which was every time I approach you with the saddle, you should run away from it. 
And um, so we just kind of tweaked things up a little bit. We had to make that horse momentarily uncomfortable so that he would learn that the saddle sitting on his back was not going to hurt him and that we were going to take care of him in that way. So um, I think that um, you have to advance um, with these kinds of techniques. And um, sometimes you will have to um, advance more than the horse is willing to volunteer for. So uh, your horse has no reason to like people and he never will if he won't let you catch him and approach him and put your hands on him and teach him that he can be safe with you and that he can actually enjoy being with you. So um, I think you have to look for ways to draw him in by releasing pressure when he approaches but always keep advancing your agenda and always keep asking for greater concessions from him. Like I said, uh, as a horse trainer, uh, we would have moved past this probably within in the first week of training. Um, and it, it, we, we may have had to force the agenda. And by that, I mean, you know, I may have with that little yearling colt, I would have just snagged him with the halter so that then I had the ability to, um, you know, be connected to him in a way that I could actually train him and teach him something. So, you know, in extreme cases, as I mentioned um, with the blindfolding thing, sometimes in extreme cases, food and water is actually withheld from a horse and only given to the horse by a human. And this can be a highly effective way of teaching a horse to not only accept a human's presence, but to like the human's presence. Um, but that's pretty ex extreme. Um, and while I recognize uh, why this tactic would work, uh, it's not really something I would do. Um, I'd probably push that horse to the point um, where I, I can actually lay hands on him. Um, and uh, that might push him a little bit uh, momentarily. Um, but once I can lay hands on him and he learns that, um, and he learns that he doesn't get to leave whenever he wants, um, then I can go to work and then I can start looking for bigger concessions from the horse, knowing that once I can touch him and handle him, he'll learn to like me and I can teach him everything he needs to know, um, for us to get along well, fairly quickly. Um, but I might've had to push past that point of resistance, um, in the beginning. So I hope that helps. It's, uh, it's hard to give you a specific, uh, point of reference or departure point. You have to just um, just deal with the horse that's in front of you and uh, work through points of resistance, uh, but always keep advancing the agenda. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you for listening. Next month, I'll be back with another brand new episode. So remember to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode and invite your equestrian friends to join us. I love sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. Do you have a horse training question or issue you want me to talk about in an upcoming episode? To send your questions for What the Hay or topic ideas, just message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Ride On with Julie Goodnight is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, 
head on over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review it. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners find the podcast. Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Julie Goodnight to get even more training advice and updates. And head to my online academy for tons of free training resources, memberships, online coaching with me, and more at juliegoodnight.com slash academy. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your upper level skills, I hope you found some helpful information here to make your horse life better. Thanks again for your insightful comments and for the five-star ratings so that other horse lovers like you and me can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you again for listening and please stay safe and enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm.